This is Creating Utopia, the podcast, ideas to change the world, where we turn conversation into action. Thank you for joining. This episode is titled The Digital Revolution, Information Overload, and Joe Rogan. Most listeners, I think, will be familiar with the concept of the Industrial Revolution. I would briefly describe it as the period from uh, 1760 to 1840, where mainly the Western cultures first started to harness machine power, they implemented it on a wide scale, and the modern civilization we live in today, with radio, household electricity, vehicles, air travel, television, refrigeration, medicine, technology, have all sort of been byproducts, in a way, of that revolutionary time. We're living through a similar type of transitionary period today, and this week's episode is going to focus on the creating utopia perspective of where we might be heading. Let's just think back to the mid-1890s, when Marconi sends the first radio transmission. I've been thinking a lot about this lately, because really prior to radio, we had the written word and the face-to-face word, and that was it. If we wanted to get a message out into the world, we wrote it down and shared it, or we spoke it to those around us. In order to share this idea, it had to be with people we had access to, which was very limited with transportation systems at the time. And also, if the words were written, they could only be understood by those who could, first off, read, secondly, read the same language, and then they had to get access to one of the copies, however many it was you were able to actually get printed. So when the first radio transmission was sent, and the theory behind the technology is proven effective, it changes everything. All of a sudden, we could get complex messages and ideas sent across vast distances almost instantaneously. It's far superior in many ways to Morse code or letters and books, inferior in some ways, but superior in many. And then flash forward to the end of the 1920s and the 1930s. It takes about 35 years for radio technology to be introduced, used by government, military, and wealthy private individuals, until all of a sudden, in 1930, 12 million households in the U.S. have a radio. And then in 1939, that number jumps to 28 million. There are multiple broadcasting networks. People can broadcast their own messages from home and communicate with people across the world. It took about 35 years, but eventually this technology spreads and becomes commonplace. It went from a relatively exclusive, controlled area of life to the medium in which a lot of people got their news, to the way we shared our own news, and then we get TV. Although... It, too, began to take shape in the late 1890s. It wasn't until 1942 that broadcasts began to be sent on major airwaves, and it took another 30 years, until the 1960s and 70s, until the color television that we know today became popular, and it became seen almost as a necessity. All of a sudden, there's one network, and then three, and then ten, a hundred, thousands... And now, at least from what I could find, 
10 to 20,000 television broadcast networks around the world. It takes a while, but eventually we hit the point where TV merged with another technology, the internet, and now almost anyone can create a show or movie themselves. And if it's good, it'll get picked up by a big-time network. YouTube, Netflix, Hulu, these are networks, and they're pretty big in terms of their reach. So here we are, about 15 to 20 years into the internet. We are living in the middle of the digital revolution right now, at this very moment. I have few doubts that history will look back on the 1990s to 2030s as most likely the most rapid change in human society ever before seen. What I meant in the title by information overload isn't necessarily Alvin Toffer's co concept, something that it's a bad thing in the short and the long run. It just is. And it will continue to take everyone time to adjust to all of this new information and this rapid change. As Toffer even pointed out in Future Shock, everyone will adjust to new technology at a massively differentiating rate based on factors of comfortability, curiosity, level of enjoyment, ease of use, access, opportunity, etc. These factors have and will continue to lead us to explore the digital landscape and new digital world at a differing pace. But it's almost unavoidable now. And a great example of this uh, differentiating pace is from Kenya back in 2007. There was a large percentage of the population began to use cell phone credits as a currency to pay utility bills, rent, and send money to friends. The birth of digital currency could very well be traced back to some of these methods, or at the very least, the new ideas of digital currency, Bitcoin and all of that, th this original 2007 Kenyan situation definitely spawned some ideas. So just think, in Africa, there are countries that have bypassed the landline and transitioned right into the future implementing technological strategies to solve problems that we in the West are just beginning to get comfortable with on a mass scale. Digital instantaneous payments. The digital revolution is here, and it's going to get much more interesting. Most children growing up in the world today, not all but most, will see a car, a TV, a cell phone, use the internet, my point here is that most people in the world right now who are in a position to make the world much better or much worse have access to technology that the rest of us are going to have access to in a few short years. 3D printing, drone delivery, virtual reality, automated driving, exoskeletons, digital currency. These are all here now and they'll be in the hands of the masses in what? 5, 10, 15 years? Information overload, in my sense, is referring to the fact that the smartphones, tablets, laptops, and computers that are connected to the internet right now, the number somewhere between 15 billion in 2015 and an estimated 40 billion in 2020, 
this number that doubles, triples, or quadruples the amount of people on the planet? Well, these devices, if still somehow connected to the internet, would be just 50 years ago and extending back throughout the entire history of human beings. The most valuable anything on the planet ever. The devices we have access to hold within them the ability to review nearly all of recorded human history. It isn't always easy to navigate through, and there are classes you can take just to learn how to research on the internet. But it's all there. And if anyone had one of these tablets or smartphones connected to the internet just 50 years ago, there would be almost no price that was too steep that anyone would be willing to pay to access it. And here we are, four billion of us, with way too much information to ever come close to absorbing or learning. If all you did was read and watch videos, I doubt you could eclipse 0.00001% of the information on the internet, even if you stopped including everything new created from the moment that you started. Twitter, podcasts, YouTube, Vimeo, Facebook, these are imperfect conduits of human expression. They aren't perfect, and they never will be. That's why we don't use MySpace anymore, or MSN Messenger. But they are enabling us to become closer to each other, become creators of content, and share our voices with the world, almost face-to-face, -face, for the first time in human history. We have the platforms to share complex ideas, connect with those across the planet on a regular basis whom past generations would have never dreamt of communicating with. Which brings me to Joe Rogan, someone I've been familiar with for a long time now and been following closely for about three years. What's fascinating to me right now is how there are so many who are willing or eager to put labels on, well, everything and everyone. Joe Rogan is a insert label. After listening to him for years, I don't even think Joe would be comfortable saying he knows what he thinks about most controversial topics. I've heard him say so many times that he, quote unquote, doesn't know anything. He says he knows nothing. When he does seem to draw a line and fall on a side, you can hear him trying to acknowledge the other side's valid points. And while not effectively, there is an effort to be respectful in a somewhat unique, certainly, I'll say old school, or admittedly offensive way. Now don't get me wrong. For example, he likes to hunt animals for the purpose of eating them and he disagrees with vegans, and he insults them. He even has a voice he uses for his progressive hippie-type vegan person. Yeah, man, uh, don't eat meat. Meat is murder. And okay, I don't want to speak for Joe or anything or defend that behavior, but I have no problem saying that as a person who thinks we probably all should transition to more of a vegan diet, I'm not offended by Joe. 
that voice could literally be used to mock me specifically. Like he could say, this is my creating utopia hippie voice, man. And it's it doesn't offend me because I think the broader point of the jokes he's making, even perhaps at my expense, is that there's a certain type of activist anything, be it vegan in this instance, who is just completely inflexible to any disagreement. I don't think he's making fun of me or my brother who is actually attempting to become a vegetarian at this very moment for being vegetarian or vegan. I think he's making fun of me or my brother for the moments anyone tries to tell anyone else we all should think and act exactly the same way. To just focus on this example here, the vegan example, and not bring any other controversial topics to the table right now, Joe Rogan brings vegans on his show. He promotes certain aspects of a vegan lifestyle. He brings on dietitians and doctors to discuss both sides from both biased perspectives. And he always, always, always does this with an open mind. He can disagree and stand by his points and his research, but he'll always hear anyone out and will end up promoting seemingly positive ideas from any source. Vegan, vegetarian, carnivore. He'll let someone speak for three hours in conversation if it takes that long because he wants it to take that long. He wants to learn. This is why it's working for him and why it's so compelling. I mean, I'm fairly confident his is the most popular podcast ever at this point. It's one of the only marketplaces of ideas where everything is at the bottom line, respected and discussable. There's no one who would be shunned from Joe Rogan's podcast for having an outlandish or seemingly ridiculous opinion or lifestyle choice or anything. There will be curiosity humor he might tease you and at the end of the day the thing that i love about rogan is that i've heard him say statements along the lines over and over of go ahead and enjoy live your life who am i to judge rogan's an example of a human being who at this moment is trying to live learn love enjoy share information and help people And he's found the best way for him to do that at the moment with what he has access to. The digital revolution is enabling him to get information out there and enabling us all to have that Joe Rogan moment where we can find an area of life and society where we can contribute positively while enjoying ourselves, being productive, and just being at peace. Which brings us to the final segment the way I end every podcast off with a semi-actionable idea that can maybe make life or the world a little bit better. How to create utopia. This episode was really trying to highlight the opportunity half of the planet has as of right now, that half that has an internet connection and a laptop, that can potentially hear my voice right now. That we all have an opportunity to have our voices heard, as well as learn from literally billions of human beings that exist today and have existed in the past. We are building a digital global society where borders don't need to exist 
and ideas have no standing beyond their merits. We can choose to use this platform, use this opportunity to explore the ideas of the world and challenge ourselves to find better answers in our own minds than the ones we have now. Net neutrality's elimination may have negative consequences. It may also spawn the Internet 2.0 and 3.0 or a new global network broadcast around the world for free for everyone. Who knows? But I do know that this desire we have to connect and learn and share will not go away. We'll continue to work together, whether through competition or altruism. Remember, competition only exists when there are others around to compete with. In a competitive society, the winners of the game have to make sure the losers keep showing up to play. And the losers, they need to either have a chance to win or feel like they have a chance to win or else they'll stop playing or they'll just start to play a new game. This is the point we are at now and why things seem so amazing in so many areas and so dysfunctional in others. We're discovering that there is a new game to play. We can create utopia if we interface with the digital world in a way we're comfortable with, in a way we enjoy and can promote positivity and growth and goodwill. We're each in a position to truly change the world if we embrace the changes around us and use what we have available to make ourselves more educated, more patient, more relaxed, more productive. Don't forget, you are in control of technology, not the other way around. For now. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Creating Utopia, the podcast. If you found it valuable or interesting, the best way to support the podcast is by sharing it, reviewing it, liking it, and leaving comments. I'll make every effort to reply to everything. Stay tuned for the next episode, which I'm really excited about, on Bernie Sanders.